Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Last week for Spirit in Action, we listened to a panel convened by and at Eau Claire's Unitarian Universalist Congregation on the topic of science and spirituality, and we're going to push a little further down that road today. Last week, we heard thoughts from four science professors at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire about the intersection of faith and science in their lives. We finished listening to the panel up to the start of the Q&A session that followed, and then I spoke individually with physics and astronomy prof Jim Rabicki, who facilitated the panel. The full Q&A session can be heard on the NordenSpiritRadio.org site as a bonus excerpt, but I wanted to start off today with just a taste of that session. This is from last Tuesday, Science and Spirituality panel, a question proposed by Jim Rubicki and responded to by Matt Jewell. Matt had brought up near the end there about the purview of science and made me think about, so recently there was the announcement of the discovery of gravity waves that hopefully people heard about. And uh, if you watch that press conference or read any of the news reports from that, one of the, the scientists that was there was Kip Thorne from Caltech. If you saw the movie Interstellar, he wrote the original treatment for that. He's also written some popular books on black holes. But one of the things he was known for with his students was talking about encouraging them not to waste their time on questions that are not well posed. And so just because talking about unanswerable questions and limits of science, this brought to mind one of his students was Alan Lightman, who's a, a novelist, an essayist, and physicist by his own right. And he talked about his time being a student of Kip Thorne. And I just want to read a quote that's a little extended to maybe have a jumping off with what you guys are talking about. This is Alan Lightman reflecting on this idea of well-posed problems. He said, quote, I've since come to understand that there are many interesting problems that are not well-posed in the thorn sense. For example, does God exist? What is love? Would we be happier if we lived a thousand years? These questions are terribly interesting, but they lie outside the domain of science. Never will a physics student receive his or her degree working on such a question. Yet, they are still fascinating questions, questions that provoke us and bring forth all kinds of creative thought and inventions. For many artists and humanists, the question is more important than the answer. Science is powerful, but it has limitations. Just as the world needs both certainty and uncertainty, the world needs questions with answers and questions without answers. So, I suppose, 
few questions that whatever you guys would like to answer with this is, does the world really need questions without answers would be one. Do you agree about these limits of science? I know, Matt, you've talked a little bit about where you sense there, but if you expand that. And I guess, what are your personal thoughts as scientists about the, the value of spending time on questions that are unanswerable in this, this sense? So. I think it's pretty well said in terms of that there are these different kinds of questions and I know my soul would wither if the only thing I could think about was well-posed questions. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, uh, for, for me, I, I have told my wife, I need a little poetry in my life. I am not terribly poetic. I'm, I don't do such a good job of producing it, but I need the people on the other side of campus to, to come up with it now and then because... We in science have done a great job of producing technological revolution, of, of curing disease, and, and doing lots of good things for society. But I think what makes us people are the not well-posed questions. That was UWO Claire's material science prof, Matt Jewell, responding to the first question of the Q&A session, the full thing on NordenSpiritRadio.org. But right now I want to share some more interchange with Matt as he joins us by phone. I'm so pleased, Matt, that you could join me to share a few additional thoughts on Spirit in Action. Yeah, happy to be with you, Mark. So the presentation Tuesday night, there's so much about it that I liked, including the extreme openness of all the presenters. And when challenged by one or two of the members of the audience in the Q&A session, I thought that your reactions were very compassionate and empathetic. Was that at all hard to do since there was at least some pushback? It's like, why are you all Christians? No, I I don't think so. I I think we all understand, everyone on the panel understands that, you know, these are issues that provoke strong reactions in people. And and that's okay. And in a way, that's good because, you know, these topics of our faith and what we believe about the world, I mean, these are somehow, you know, at the core of who we are as people. So people should have strong reactions to them. And I think from my point of view, as someone who's sort of had a foot in both scientific community and community of faith for many years, uh, I think I just try to show both sides how the other side has some good points to make. and no, I don't, I don't really mind if people have strong reactions to it. I think all of you, in at least indirect ways, referred to the fact that there's some at least perceived and sometimes actual static going back and forth. I mean, you know, you go back and Galileo and say, no, you can't say that the earth moves around the sun. That's not okay. That, that comes from the Catholic Church at that point. Over the history, there's certainly been where push came to shove between the two forces. Do you experience that at all in your work ever? I mean, do you feel like your religious faith body ever gives you explicitly or implicitly a message that, no, it's not okay to research because that somehow undermines our faith? I personally don't experience that. I should be careful and say, you know, in my particular area, much more of an engineering background and in material science, we're not quite on the front lines of some of these hot button issues that others are. Uh, Derek Gingrich, who's part of the panel, is a cellular biologist, and he certainly sees it much more, the sort of, you know, evolution issues much more at the front of what he does as a researcher, as a teacher, than what I see. So in a direct way, I don't see those issues in my work or, or have people saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing X or Y or Z. I think more broadly, what I would like to foster, I think, between communities is just a little bit more of a feeling of trust or a willingness to accept that the other side has certain, let's say, areas of expertise and and can address certain questions well, that the scientific community and communities of faith 
are kind of each in their own ways well aligned to answer certain types of questions. And I guess I would like both sides to be a little more willing to recognize the types of questions that the other side is really well equipped to address and maybe just be a little bit more listening to what those sides have to say about that. There's something that was said to me years ago, interview I did with a professor who's down in Madison area. And since he's science and he's one of the evangelicals who's raising the concern about climate science, he has a foot in both camps. And one of the challenges that he responded to is some people say, you know, well, the Bible says this and that somehow that doesn't match with your science. And he said that in his religious tradition, they say that God wrote two great books. One was the Bible for our religious, spiritual, moral guidance, and God wrote the world, the entire universe. And when we study that, we're both studying different books of God. Is that something you've been exposed to, or is that perhaps even how you think? Yeah, I, I think that's not a bad way to put it. I think certainly from the point of view of my faith background, the Bible does speak about nature as something that reveals to us God's character, as something that reveals to us the sort of being that God is. And so from my point of view, certainly study of nature helps us to understand God better. At the same time, I would be quick to say that that, that being said, the Bible is not meant to be a, a natural science textbook. And so we need to be careful to separate the ways in which we use nature to help us understand God's character from the ways in which, in my view, some people try to use nature to come to a particular position on how the earth was formed or how old the earth is or, or those sort of things. So I would, just, I would just separate those types of questions. But no, I don't disagree with the general idea behind that statement. You heard me ask a question right at the end of the Q&A session, and I wasn't satisfied with my response, not because I thought the response I got was wrong, but because it didn't engage with what my core question was. And I was saying, you know, for scientific method, here's how you measure that you're on the right track, you know, the whole hypothesis, testing, feedback loop. And my question really was to say, well, in terms of religion, and this took into account that one questioner was saying, well, you know, you're only Christians because that's what you grew up in. That's the environment you grew up in. But I, I would say that probably where you are in religion, there's been a feedback loop of some sort. And so my question was, how do you test what you're doing is in harmony with, I guess I'd say, God? How do, how do you know that you're on the right path? Yeah, I think we should think about kind of internal and external feedback loops there in terms of the faith community. So I think internally there's lots of built-in feedback loops. I mean, we as Christians, we have we have the Bible, and each of us as Christians should be going to look, is my life, the way I'm living my life, is that aligned with the way Jesus taught us to live our lives? That's by definition kind of an internal feedback. And there are others too built in with our faith communities, people in our lives that we trust and that care about us and, and can also you know give us that kind of feedback. I suppose those on the outside might say, well, that's all kind of self-referential, you know, what's sort of your external feedback. And there I think we need to look at a couple things. One, I don't think we need to try and set up an approach. In fact, I would say we should not try and set up an approach like science has with sort of a scientific method and, you know, hypotheses, et cetera, because I don't really think that most questions of faith kind of align with, with that approach very well. I do think that as people of science, though, we can look to say, essentially, is our faith rational? And here, I think Doug Matthews on the panel was speaking to this a little bit, trying to say that, you know, he works very hard to not put on one hat as a scientist and a different hat as kind of a Christian. To speak to that a little more, 
One of the books that Gary Gingrich highlighted was this book called Science and Religion and What Scientists Really Believe by Elaine Eklund, who's a sociologist at Rice University. And she has some really interesting statistics in there about people from different faith backgrounds, meaning you know Hindus, Buddhists, people of Jewish faith, Christians. What percent of those are found within the scientific community versus what percent are found in the general public? And what's very interesting to me, and I'd call this a self-criticism as a Christian, that from what I could see in, in her work, a lot of faith communities like Buddhism, Hinduism, basically scientists were equally represented within the faith as in the general public, meaning that if you have a 5% likelihood of finding a Hindu person on the street, you have a more or less 5% chance of finding a, a Hindu scientist. I'm not saying that was a number, just as an example. For Christians, however, in particular for Protestant and evangelical Christians, the numbers are much lower than the scientific community. And that, I think, should raise a little bit of an alarm bell for us as Christians. That says to me that somehow, however we are framing our message as Christians, isn't coming across as compelling to people in the scientific community. And I suppose you could look at that as either from the point of view of a scientist or from the point of view of a Christian, but certainly from the point of view of a Christian, I would say there's some way there that we've maybe made it difficult for people of science to find our faith accessible and compelling. And I think that requires some introspection. So in terms of what's the metric we're using, I would point to that as the way where maybe we could do better as, as Christians. Unfortunately, there's another ingredient besides the scientific community and the faith community. There's also this thing, kind of a political community. And I would say that most clearly linked in the eye of the public is that people who are self-identifying as very religious happen to be of a worldview that, for instance, is not supportive of climate change science and actually has been advocating for the inclusion of non-scientific science in textbooks. So I think that there's a black eye that's been given to Christianity because of its association with certain political candidates. Do you end up feeling that kind of onus landing on you because you're a Christian and science? I think it's a very fair criticism, and I, and I would say it's a fair criticism in two specific ways. First, as a scientist, I would say that it's misguided that, obviously, and from my point of view, that those criticisms ring pretty hollow in, in light of, of what the science tells us. But also from a Christian, I would say something else which is that the third temptation of Jesus in the desert at the beginning of several of the Gospels was to have all this worldly power and just give up who he was as God's son. And I would argue that the sort of political power being sought by many Christians is essentially this same temptation, if you like. It's the temptation to insert ourselves into these worldly affairs, not that Christians shouldn't vote or be engaged in politics, but when we try to say, and now we're going to you know, require that everyone learn this or everyone teach this or everyone follow this view that we hold, that's essentially the bargain that Jesus was offered. He turned it down. I think we would be wise to turn it down as well. And I wanted to also ask you, Matt, a little bit about your specific religious path. So, for instance, Derek mentioned you know, growing up Mennonite and then associated currently with Lake Street United Methodist. You referred to being part of a Christian kind of separatist apart from the world type of group. And then uh, I don't think you said where you actually kind of landed, where you find that fellowship and support for being the kind of Christian you are in the world. Could you talk anything about that journey? Yeah, sure I can. So this community I grew up with, I would say, I don't believe they had sort of a denominational affiliation, but were sort of, I would say, baptistic in their beliefs, practices. 
And I don't want to hit them too hard over the head. I think there, you know, there are people there that really loved God, that really looked to the Bible for their inspiration, how to live their lives, and really try to follow it the best they could. And I think a lot of those things I've taken with me and, and held with me for my whole life. At the same time, some of the things I talked about on, on Tuesday night, I would see as maybe uh, things I don't want to emulate from that community in terms of really separating from the world, really not engaging with the culture. I think we can do a lot better than that as Christians. My wife and I have a long faith journey. I would say we were both Christians when we met and got married. It's really been a foundational thing in our marriage and how we raise our kids and that sort of thing. We are right now up at Chippewa Valley Bible Church, which is on the south side of Chippewa Falls. We kind of live on the north side of Eau Claire. And that's also kind of a faith community without denominational affiliation. From my point of view, they have much, I'm say, more balanced perspective on trying to teach what the Bible says, trying to live a life uh, according to how Jesus showed us, and also really trying to reach out to the community around us, trying to engage with the community, trying to give both kind of practical help and also what we would see as spiritual help to the people around us. So we really just kind of fell in love with that community when we moved to the Eau Claire area, and it's been a really good home for us. And I also wondered how it was for you, Matt, at the university, because you have those two identities merged. Do you feel like in some way you're held in lesser esteem at the university than someone who would be self-proclaiming as either atheist or agnostic or Buddhist or whatever? No, I really wouldn't say that at all. I, I mean, I know there are people, there, there are Christians in academia who report some kind of what they perceive as bias or bias or pushback against them because of their faith. Here at, at Eau Claire, maybe it's because there are, I think, a lot of people here in the campus community who are people of faith. Maybe it's just kind of our Midwest tolerance for each other. I don't know. But but no, I really I really never feel that. I think I can have pretty productive discussions with people who are declared atheists, people who have religious views, but they're different than mine. I, I think I'm pretty open about my faith here, and I've, I've really never experienced uh, pushback against it. Well, it's all very good from my point of view. I Again, I thought that your presentation, your advocacy for the self-examination of both Christian and scientific community, I thought for me that that fit as the highlight of the evening. It was exactly the call that was needed. And I want to convey to you how important it is that you said that, that you gave that to us, that you were serving as, a, in my view, a very valid channel for divine insight there. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Let, let, let me just, if I can just interject there. Another thing I, I read in this book that Derek and I are reading, the Elaine Eklund book, that I thought was really just pretty smart perspective of hers was uh, a lot of people see science and religion being in opposition. But actually, Elaine Eklund argues that actually in some ways people of science and people of faith are both in some ways kind of bastions of modernity in a postmodern world. We live in a culture, I think, that we're very much we're allowed to define our own reality, define what's good for us, define what's not good for us. But both science and faith in different ways say, you know, there, there's an objective reality outside of us, and we have to go find the objective reality outside of us, and we're going to be better off if we do find it. And the sort of topics or the thing being searched for is, is different in most cases, but, but actually there's, there's a common ground there. And I think I would like more people of faith and more people in science to sort of see that common ground, and I think that would help us work together. Yeah, you say it also very well, and I can imagine you're an excellent teacher as well. I'm glad that you're doing that service to our students. The scientific method is so valuable in terms of producing outcomes, and I do think that faith is in term so important that we have roots. So I think you're encouraging both those wide-reaching arms and the rootedness, which is, I think, the greatest position of strength we can come from. 
Great. Well, thank you, Mark. Well, it was fun to talk to you. Thanks very much. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Matt Jewell. He's in material sciences at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and he was part of that panel that we had past Tuesday on science and spirituality. Before we go on to speak to the two remaining members of that panel, I want to remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production originating from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, home of WHYS LP Radio. Spirit in Action is on the web at nerdandspiritradio.org with more than ten and a half years of our programs, free for listening and download, loaded with links to our guests and further information about them. There's a place to post comments and make our conversation two-way by posting a comment when you visit. Also consider clicking on the Donate button to support NSR. It's not by corporations or government, but by your generous support that this full-time work is supported. But let's not forget to first support with our hands and with our wallets that invaluable alternative source of news and music that is community radio. Wherever you are, start by making sure that community radio is strong and adequately supported. Right now, back to the two other science profs who were part of the Science and Spirituality panel held at Eau Claire's UU. Next up is Derek Gingrich in Biology at UW-Eau Claire. Derek, I look forward to an extended visit to hear more of your views for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. As you know, Derek, I think it was an excellent panel, and I think that you spoke really well about the intersection of science and spirituality in your life and your work, growing up Mennonite and being involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college. I tend to think of InterVarsity as... You know, I don't know, at least evangelical, if not fundamentalist, would you say? Definitely evangelical. I'm not sure about fundamentalist. I'm sure there are individuals involved in InterVarsity that probably have viewpoints that might lean towards fundamentalism. But as a larger group, I would say InterVarsity, is, I would identify it more as evangelical. Certainly working in the university setting, which is, of course, higher education, there have been fears, just as there have been in Islam and other religions, that there's kind of an anti-intellectual emphasis to some fundamentalist religion. Did you ever receive any pressure saying, you know, back off? Why don't you go into this area instead of into biology, that kind of thing? You know, I really didn't. And I was lucky in that my immediate family, my parents, they really encouraged me in whatever I wanted to do. You know, the Mennonite community that I grew up in, I wouldn't say that they strongly promoted higher education. That was and still is largely a farming community. And I think for many of the the families there, there was the general expectation that the farm was where the kids were probably going to end up. And so a great deal of higher education was not necessarily needed. That said, there certainly were individuals within that community who went on to higher education, Uh, many of them going to at least the Mennonite institutions of higher education, the Eastern Mennonite College University, uh, Goshen College, for instance. And certainly within my immediate family, my parents were very strongly supportive of my efforts to continue my education and and to do what I wanted to do. And for me, that was to get into science and to be able to do research. And ultimately, I sort of figured out that I wanted to be teaching too. And when you get into genetics, Science is opening great vistas in terms of the possibilities, both for understanding and manipulating. And I do think that faith, religion, spirituality has a lot to say about what paths we might choose to go down. 
Do you find that coming in at all as you do your research, as you do your thinking about DNA and its possible futures? Yeah, to some extent. My research itself is very basic. I'm trying to understand some basic molecular pathways and processes. It is research that may at some point have some practical application because it deals with some plant responses to the environment and the information I find out may inform some breeding that, say, a company doing crop development might be interested in. But, you know, I, I would definitely agree with you. The tools that we have available now, the molecular tools we have available to study DNA, the genomes, their structure, their functions are very powerful. And what we've learned in the last 30 to 40 years as those tools have become available is really transformed biology in many ways in terms of understanding the underlying genetic bases of a lot of function of organisms. Those tools also can be used to do manipulation, genetic manipulation, and certainly when you start thinking about doing that, then ethical issues arise. And for someone who comes from a faith background, those ethical views are going to be informed and influenced by their beliefs in terms of of their religious beliefs. And so that's something that I have thought about. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's always appropriate to do it. On the other hand, there are times when a new technology can be used to address issues and problems in ways that can help people, and it can be appropriate to promote and help move those technologies forward if you think that those technologies are going to help the broader world. But I would say definitely for a person of faith, when you start making those ethical sort of considerations, certainly your religious beliefs directly influence that. Could you talk a little bit, I I think that intelligent design or creationism or evolution, natural selection type outlooks are probably badly conceived of by people in general, that there's not a real understanding of what they refer to. So could you talk about the various aspects of how the universe came to exist, how you see that in terms of validity with the knowledge that you have? So the view held by scientists, um, biologists, is that evolution and the evolutionary processes can fully explain the development of life on Earth. And so evolution, the way it works is actually pretty simple. You have a replicating entity, and that might be a living organism. It might be a single cell that is making copies of itself. It might even be something simpler than that. That replicating entity has information, and that information can change. It can mutate. It can alter. And altering that information can affect the way that that entity replicates, makes copies of itself, and also the way that that entity interacts with the environment. As new variants come along, those variants can compete with each other in terms of their ability to deal with the environment and to reproduce. What evolution simply says is that the Variants that function better will outcompete variants that don't function as well. And so the idea is, is that very early in the development of life on Earth, there were some form of self-replicating structures, entities. There's some idea that they might be simple RNA molecules, though there's a variety of different theories out there. But once you get the process going, once you get things making copies of themselves and those things be able to change in terms of their information, you can kickstart an evolutionary process that following sort of the the physical laws can ultimately result in more complex organisms and eventually to life as we know as it exists on Earth. Intelligent design and creationist views are that 
evolution can't do that, or at least can't sufficiently do that. Obviously, young earth creationists take a quite literalist view of biblical scripture. They believe in a young earth, which in terms of scientific evidence is not supported, but they believe in a young earth and that all the living organisms on earth that now exist were more or less created when the earth was created in a sort of more or less instantaneous, miraculous sort of process by God. Intelligent design proponents take a little bit different view. Many intelligent design proponents accept that evolutionary processes do occur, that those evolutionary processes can, in fact, change the traits of organisms, can result in sort of changes over time in organisms, and can account at least to some extent for what we see on Earth now. What they argue, though, is that evolutionary processes are not fully sufficient to do that. And at some point, or maybe multiple points, there had to be this outside intelligent designer that came in and did something whether that's assembling the first replicating cells, whether that's periodically coming in and performing what would be, I guess, sort of considered miraculous acts to sort of kickstart certain processes. There had to be an outside designer. And intelligent design advocates point to certain attributes they see in the living organisms that they claim would be evidence of the actions of an intelligent designer. I have multiple issues with that viewpoint. One of the big issues is that I think intelligent design is ultimately a gaps argument. Intelligent design proponents, when you read their literature, what you see a lot of are arguments that evolution can't. Evolution can't do this. It can't build that structure. And arguments of evolution can't really are arguments of, well, the scientists haven't fully figured out how this structure could be built yet, or that particular process could have been put together by an evolutionary process. And those are gaps arguments. They're arguments that are basically, well, because you haven't figured all the details out yet, I get to insert the possibility of some sort of outside agent doing something miraculous or outside of sort of natural physical processes. And the problem with that, and many other people have pointed this out, is that those gaps get filled. And so if you're basing your belief of God and how God works in the world on those gaps, over time those gaps get squeezed smaller and smaller as we do figure out evolutionary explanations for certain processes, certain structures, and certain things. So I see intelligent design arguments as gaps arguments, and I think they're problematic in that way. The other thing that bothers me about those arguments is that many intelligent design advocates do accept that evolution a mutation, natural selection does function, right? So they accept that God sort of set up these processes, but what they're saying is that, that that has been insufficient, that God created a process that doesn't fully work and requires his periodic input to get this process that isn't fully powerful and fully able to account for life on earth, that he has to come in and, and sort of periodically uh, perform miraculous acts to get that to work. And I think that's problematic from a theological perspective as a Christian. I think if God came up with a process like this, that, that he would have the ability for that process to be fully complete in the sense that that process could account for and produce what is on earth. So with that perspective that you've been sharing, Derek, what do you see as a valid scientific commentary about creationism? I understand that there are people, scientists, who support 
intelligent design or creationism or think that it should be in our classrooms and so on. I'm pretty clear that that's not your view, that it shouldn't be there. What do you think of their scientific credentials then, the, the ones that you've been able to examine? There are certainly some individuals who have solid scientific credentials who are, are part of at least the intelligent design camp. Ultimately, the vast majority of biologists have rejected the intelligent design perspective. And let me say something. You know, they raise valid scientific questions when they bring forth, say, a certain complex structure, and they ask questions like, is there really a way for evolution to build a structure like that? And by the way, that's not original to the intelligent design advocates. The broader scientific community for a long time has looked at certain structures within organisms and understood that it was probably going to take some time and take some effort to put together some evolutionary explanations for some of these highly complex sort of machines that are biological machines that are in cells. So in one sense, those are perfectly valid scientific arguments, and they're not arguments that are unique to the intelligent design advocates. I think the issue that I have and a lot of scientists have is, again, this issue of, well, because we haven't fully come up with an evolutionary explanation, maybe every single step right, in the evolutionary process to produce this particular thing, that we can sort of short circuit that. And we can just say, well, because we haven't done that yet, now I get to make a claim about some external designer, some external agent that comes in and again does something that is working outside of that evolutionary process. And I just think that's extremely problematic from a scientific process viewpoint, right? I have pathways in plant cells that I study in my research lab. We as a scientific community understand some steps of those pathways, but there are clearly gaps in those pathways that we don't understand. I assume that what fills those gaps is some natural physical process that I can go to my research lab and I can use the tools of my science to discover those natural physical processes, to fill in those gaps. If I made the assumption that those gaps actually represent some miraculous event, there would be no reason for me to go up to my research lab and do the work I do, right? I have to practice what people call methodological naturalism. I assume there is a natural physical process to explain something, even if we don't have the full explanation yet. So from the scientific perspective, that's sort of the issue with intelligent design is taking an area where we don't fully know yet and sort of short-circuiting the scientific process, saying, I get to make the claim now that what fills that gap is something miraculous. So with all of that background, what's your view of God's role in life? Is if God isn't magically saying abracadabra at this point, this is what's going to happen, which role does God play? I believe in God as an underlying sustainer, a first cause. My belief is that if God did not exist or if God were to disappear, then everything else would disappear. And I think, again, from my reading of the Bible and sort of my Christian view and my interpretation of the Bible, that's consistent with the biblical view is God is the underlying sustainer. Okay, so God is required, and he's required, he, she is required in everything. But there is also the, those natural physical processes that are also occurring. So what that means is that I think when you think about any event in the natural world, it's not that there's just one sort of single explanation, right? And that explanation is either 
a natural physical explanation or a God explanation. My view is both are there. There is an unbroken chain of natural physical events that produce what we see happening in the natural world, but God is also present as the underlying sustainer. That doesn't mean that God is directly manipulating those natural physical events. And in in the discussion last week, I talked a little bit about this idea of free will. Christians accept that human beings have free will. In other words, God is not directly manipulating our decisions. So we accept that freedom that we have. And I would argue that the natural physical world also has a form of, of its own freedom, right? There are these physical events that function according to natural physical laws. They produce certain outcomes, and God is does not necessarily have to directly manipulate them, at least in the way as we would maybe sort of describe as miraculous or or something metaphysical. But nevertheless, God is still an underlying requirement, just as I think most Christians would accept that our free will, while it does have in one sense its own form of independence from God, we truly can make our own decisions, our free will also requires God as sustainer. It would not exist without God. I have my own thoughts on this, but I hope this helps to break down the walls between those people who, because they hold science, think that somehow faith doesn't have a role. You make a persuasive case for the proper role of faith in conjunction with science. And so I really appreciate you stepping forward to stand in front of a group and with complete integrity sharing those two sides of your life. Well, thank you very much. It was a very interesting experience. I was so glad to see how many people came from the community. Also, I was very gratified to see a number of our students from the university come. And that was probably the primary reason I did it, is I hope that students might see me as somebody they could come to to discuss these issues if they're struggling with them. These topics are not ones that I'm necessarily going to bring up within my own particular classes. It's just not appropriate considering that particular classes I teach. But, you know, I would like the students at UWC to maybe see me as somebody they could come to and and discuss these issues. And for particularly Christian students to see that there are a variety of different ways that these issues can be approached. And so you don't have to reject the scientific consensus on things like evolution in order to be Christian. And you're certainly showing how to do that with integrity. So I appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate your joining me for Spirit in Action today. Thank you very much. Derek Gingrich teaches biology at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and we have one further science and spirituality panelist to visit with individually for Spirit in Action today. Our last guest is Doug Matthews, professor and chair of the Department of Behavioral Neuroscience at UWEC joining us by phone. Doug, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Sure, thanks for the invitation. It's nice to be able to talk with you again. I really appreciated your part in the presentation on science and spirituality. How do you connect with Derek and with Matt and maybe Jim in the course of your typical days at the university, or is this just a special one time when you all get side by side? So I had not met Jim and Derek before that event other than a couple of days before. Part of that is I'm in a different building than they're in, and you know some of that is just life structure. Matt and I engage with each other, I don't know, maybe once a month, once every few weeks, just in terms of either a, a time of prayer on campus or just kind of sharing what's going on in each other's lives. So I've known him for a bit. 
Are you, in terms of the campus at all, do you perceive yourself to be a, some kind of minority because you're a person of faith? Or I think maybe it was Derek who was sharing some statistics about the number of people in science who are of faith also. I think the way that I would phrase it is that I probably am a minority in terms of people that will readily talk about their faith. You know, I think it's hard to get that answer in terms of academics, you know, in terms of how many people that hold a assistant associate, a full professor title, have a practicing faith. But my feeling, and this is completely unscientific, it's just kind of my feeling, is that it's a significantly smaller percentage of people that are comfortable or see the academy as a place to have a conversation that includes faith. You know, way back in 1980, I had a discussion. I had taken a Spanish course and was talking with a couple people from the class afterwards. And one of them had told me that her perception of how these things worked, uh, she'd done various meditation and spiritual type experiences, and she'd had ecstatic spiritual experiences. But her comment about that was that she knew that that was actually, she understood the science of it. This is firing and this is and you could reproduce that physiologically just like you can stimulate memories perhaps by a little electricity through various parts of the brain etc so she knew that basically it all amounted to some kind of brain reaction and so therefore it wasn't real now you obviously have because of your work in behavioral neuroscience you have a much better understanding of the brain and how these things function. What do you think about the reality of our experiences? Since you became a follower of Jesus at the age of nine, I'm kind of assuming you've had your own intense experiences. Right, yeah. So um, I think some of what we need to keep in mind is that if we're talking about you know the idea of brain stimulation or something like that and and that creating particular traits. At best, probably what we can say happens is that brain stimulation produces a vague sense of knowing. You know, so the science there is probably not as concrete as we might might want to present it to be. What I would say is that there's, I often refer to it as tension. There's a tension, there's a mystery that exists that at the the UU event when I you know I talked about we're all people of faith you know I've had an intense interactions that are deeply spiritual for me both inside the laboratory and outside the laboratory and I believe that those are encounters with God a naturalistic scientist might say well okay you know, I I don't doubt that you self-report that you've had that event but you know, as science continues to develop and we continue to understand cognitive neuroscience, we continue to understand cognitive science, we'll be able to explain those events. And that's a conclusion of the data. It's not a conclusion that I would agree with. I think there's a phase statement inside of that that eventually we'll be able to figure that out. You know, but for me instead, it's it's much clearer, it's much more rich in terms of the idea that, you know, these are interactions with the Lord. I mean, one of the things that someone asked at the, the event the other night was, have I ever seen anything in, in the laboratory that just was an awe-inspiring or spiritual moment? And there has been times, you know, when, when I was first doing electrophysiology and I, you know, I saw something that the function of individual neurons and it just was a moment of clarity that, you know, this is a system that's designed. This is a system that exists. And, you know, it was Romans one just screaming at me, the glory of the Lord and the, the glory of the Lord's creation. 
in that sense. You know, so I think that that makes for really, I, I think, in, you know, there's a long answer to your question, but I think that makes for really interesting conversations. I think that's the excitement in this conversation of exactly how does a naturalistic worldview interact, you know, how, how would it answer that? How would a theistic worldview answer those questions? What are the limitations and what are the, the strengths of each one of those? I think that's part of what I would hope at the university we would always be wanting to explore and always wanting to ask those questions. I assume, even though you're very much connected with this addiction research and brain science of it, I assume you also have a very strong background in terms of therapy, that kind of work. So, I mean, you've got both sides of this to your background, right? So I know that there's a prejudice that has grown in this country that says, basically, religion only does bad things to people. You know, it brings along the Crusades or it's the Inquisition or people grow up with deep guilt complexes because they've repressed part of themselves, etc. I think the true picture is much more balanced at the very least. But I think that you must have sat or must be sitting in a place where you get to see more of the true picture, the true spectrum. What can you say about the spectrum of religious beliefs, faith, and the pros and cons of it in terms of behavioral outputs? It's a great question, and I think people really can struggle through that question. It's obvious, it's beyond doubt, some absolutely atrocious things have been done in the name of religion. I think one of the things that's key to keep in mind is simply because someone calls themselves religious doesn't necessarily mean that they are. So I think that's one thing that we want to keep in mind. But I do absolutely agree with you, you know, that it's important to balance out those things. And I'll speak on two different levels, one on a professional level and one on a personal level. You know, on the professional level, just when it comes to addictions, while I personally don't give therapy, I track that field quite closely as it relates to addictions. And, you know, one of the things that's difficult for us to understand is how can we develop treatment options so that people don't relapse? Because, frankly, relapse rates one year after a person enters treatment are not great. Um, you know, we got a lot of work that we still have to do there. It is true that there are some pharmacological therapies that are beneficial for people to be able to have less of a craving episode or be engaged less in an addictive behavior. That said, that's not the only answer. You know, 12-step programs, which often they don't have to be, but often engage at some level of theistic worldview, work. The data are quite convincing that there is a therapeutic advantage to that. And the question has to be, well, why is that the case? It can't simply be a placebo effect that I've engaged in something because it is better than other types of therapies that an individual might engage in. You know, so I think that in terms of good behaviors, we can see that faith does play a role in generating that. And a second one, and I, I mentioned this just briefly, one of the things that I find fascinating, you know, is we lived overseas for several years. As I said at the beginning of this question, you know, there is definitely, you know, bad things that have happened in the name of religion. But there's also amazing things that have happened in the name of religion. You know, the vast majority of hospitals that have been built around the world have been built by religious organizations, schools that have been built by religious organizations, tremendous amounts of facilitating people uh, with micro-businesses to be able to leave the bondage of poverty, work inside sex trafficking, work inside of marginalized people groups. You know, there's just a tremendous amount of individuals that do things, positive things for the nature of, of their faith. I think that 
if we only focus on the negatives, we do ourselves a disservice. Now, it is true, if we only focus on a Pollyanna approach that faith makes everything great and everything's rosy, or people who have claimed faith have always done great things, we're not being honest to the situation. I think we have to look at history and we have to own history. But I think you're absolutely right. A balanced approach is the correct way to go about it. Your time is spent in Singapore, more than five years, I think I recall. Yeah. I think that kind of experience gives you a much better view on the world. I mean, if you grow up in the United States, you certainly will see a minority of people who are identify as Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish, certainly. But in Singapore, you were the minority, if I understand what this environment is like there. How did that change your perception of your faith and in particular related to science? Yeah, in some ways it did. Singapore is an interesting country in that it is, it's a multi-religious country. It's majority Buddhist, and then it is Muslim after that, and then Hindu and, and Christian faith largely defined are third and fourth. So, you know, it was interesting to be in a minority country where, as a follower of Jesus, I was in the minority, a real small minority. We learned to... I don't want to say this. We learned that there are good people in a whole variety of different faith backgrounds, whether it be uh, Chinese free thinkers, Hindus. My secretary in Singapore was a follower of the Islamic faith, and Sidi and I had a wonderful relationship. She was really a fantastic person to work with. And that was an aspect that was good to, to understand. We would, you know, fundamentally disagree in terms of the nature of our faith, but it was quite eye-opening to interact daily with people from a wide variety of different worldviews. As it impacted my academics, you know, I think what I would say is that often science became a common ground for people of different faiths to be able to interact with one another. What I found, frankly, was that overseas, people of different faith backgrounds were much more comfortable with a unified worldview in terms of how they approach their faith. It, w- it wasn't as much of an issue. So science became a common ground upon which we got to know one another and talk to one another. I spent a weekend in Hyderabad, India, giving a, a lecture at a neurochemistry conference, and, and most of the, the scientists that came were uh, the subcontinent. And one of the things that struck me about that was that the notion that they were people of faith was just part of who they were. So, you know, I think some of that is some of that notion of that duality of life, that I have a spiritual life and maybe I have a scientific life and they, the two don't intersect and they don't intersect very much is a little bit of a, maybe a concept of the West. I don't necessarily have any data to back that up. That's just my own opinion. But yeah, it was a, it was a great, rich environment to be in. The department I was in there had... I don't know, there was about 20 of us, and I think we represented six or seven different countries in it. So it was a really, really rich environment. I, too, have noticed the dichotomy, the difference between East and West in terms of approach or thoughts about religion. But I think that in part comes and originated maybe in Europe and then manifests somewhat in the United States because we've embraced multiculturalism or multi-ethnic and multi-religious identity to a greater degree. I mean, in India, you still think Hindu, indigenous, Muslim, and Buddhist. I mean, they're all part of the ethnic mix, but ethnic identity is so much stronger than in the United States 
we, we merge into the public sector. One of the rules is you don't talk about politics, religion, or sex in public. And I think that's very much different in those countries where they're so woven in, the identities of these things are so woven in to their day-to-day lives. Yeah, I agree with that completely. When I spent some time just on holiday in the United Arab Emirates, the universities you know, in the UAE, you have call to prayers five times a day. And, you know, that's part of identity. That's part of life. That's part of their adherence to their worldview. You know, so it's, it, it, it was an interesting experience. And, and then coming back to the U.S. after being gone for that period of time was also interesting because, you know, we were, I suppose, out of the country long enough that it seemed like things had changed a little bit. You know, so it made for an interesting year to, to catch back up into, you know, the American worldview, the American lifestyle. There's a phrase you've used it a couple of times during this interview. You used it as you were part of the panel, Matt. That is, you referred to yourself as a follower of Jesus. You became a follower of Jesus at age nine. And that's a term I tend to identify with personally. In part, I contrast that to being a Christian, which has a whole other definition. And there's layers. There's 2,000 years of accretions of definitions. I tend to go back to Jesus and feel pretty comfortable. I tend to think about a lot of what's been added on since then and be probably less attracted to it. Is that a phrase that you use particularly consciously to differentiate yourself from some other thing? Yeah, it is. One of the things that I guess I've learned over the years is the term Christian means so many different things to different people. It harkens to someone's background. It harkens to someone's family of origin. It harkens to somebody's general life. When I use the term, you know, if I use the term Christian, you know, essentially what I mean by that might be different from the way that they would take it. So I've attempted over the years to adopt, you know, I just I just attempt to follow Jesus. I'm just a follower of Him. I find that to be much like what you just said. You know, it's essentially the root of what I like to ground my life inside of. So I try to be very conscientious of that. Well, Doug, I thought your part in the panel was really helpful. It really opened some eyes, I think. I really appreciate the fact that you're combining your scientific work, making such a difference for people with addictions, etc., the lives of students, inspiring them to go forward, and, of course, your willingness to join me here today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation, and I appreciate all the work you're doing. Doug Matthews of the Behavioral Neuroscience Department at UW-Eau Claire was the third of the folks exploring with us today on the intersection of science and spirituality, a follow-up to the panel we heard them speak at just last week. It's all immortalized on northernspiritradio.org, plus some excerpts we couldn't fit into this broadcast, including the Q&A session that followed the panel. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.